Welcome to Schweitzer. We're so glad that you've joined us for worship today. My name is Sheila and I'll be your host for this online worship experience. If this is your first time with us, we want to give you a special welcome. If you'll check in with us, this coming week we'll send you a gift card and your coffee is on us. We're in week three of our series, Revelation. Pastor Spencer has a great message just ahead for all of us. Speaking of the sermon, we have online discussion questions and more for you at schweitzer.church/next. You can find out more about the sermon and dig a little deeper. And now, here's Stephanie with our announcements. Hello, welcome to Schweitzer. I'm Stephanie. I want to start off by reminding you that next Sunday, October 2nd, the time for many of our Sunday morning classes and also our modern worship service are changing just a little bit. Our traditional service will continue to be at 9 a.m., but we're moving our modern worship service back just a little bit to 10.30 a.m. Remember, that's a 10.30 a.m. start time for modern worship. This change in times will allow us to offer more new classes and still offer us time to connect with each other between services. We'll also be offering a host of new classes at both 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'll look forward to seeing you at one of those. Also, next Sunday, our Schweitzer students are kicking off confirmation classes. Here's Levi to tell you more. What's up, y'all? I'm Levi Zinn, the student ministry director here at Schweitzer, here to tell you a little bit about confirmation. First, you're probably asking, Levi, what is confirmation? Confirmation is a class specifically designed for our students to really dive in and build those foundations for their relationship with Christ. So why is this important? Here at Schweitzer, we believe confirmation is a crucial part in helping these students as they live their lives to have a better understanding of God and His love for them. Lastly, when is confirmation and how do I get signed up? Confirmation starts October 2nd and runs through the Sunday right before Easter. It's going to be from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. and you can get signed up on Church Center. I'm so excited to go through confirmation with all these students and get to know them and get to see them get to know God. Another great opportunity coming up is our free Guys Breakfast coming up on Saturday, October 8th at 8 a.m. in the Student Center. We'll have a delicious full breakfast, a special guest speaker, and have a great time getting to know one another. We encourage you to bring your dad, son, friend, neighbor, anybody with you. We'd love to see you at this event. Find out more at schweitzer.church next. Ladies, this coming Friday and Saturday is our hometown women's retreat. We are so ready for you to come and join us for a special night at Nathaniel Green Park on Friday and then a great day Saturday here in our student center. You will be encouraged as you spend time with other ladies getting to know the goodness and beauty of God all around us. This is the final day to sign up to guarantee your food and all your goodies. So be sure and do that today in the lobby or look online at schweitzer.church women. We are grateful that you are here today. Let's continue with worship. Thanks, Stephanie, for letting us know all those great ways that we can join in ministry at Schweitzer Church. If you're joining us live, we invite you to join in the chat. Say hi to your friends, give us your insights. And if you're in need of prayer, 
press that prayer button. We have someone waiting to pray with you. And now on this great day of worship, join us as we sing our praises to God.
As we come to the special time in our service of prayer, I invite you to join with me as we pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are so much bigger than everything that we know and see and comprehend. We pray that today as we share time together in worship that you will be with us, that your Holy Spirit will fill us with with the presence of God and, and that we will be inspired to share your good news with others. God, we know that this world is not an easy place to live in sometimes. Some days are really difficult and, and sometimes we follow teachings that don't make any sense and that confuse us and, and lead us a wrong direction. God, we ask you to be the standard in our lives. We ask you to be the lead of all the teachings that we understand. we want to pray by saying the prayer that you taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to this time of offering, I wanna share with you about our men's ministry here at Schweitzer. These guys are so active in the life of our church. Every three months, they have a breakfast and fellowship together. Then another month, they will go on an outing, they'll go hiking together, they'll do something outside, it's so much fun. And this past week, for their service project, they did some planting here at Schweitzer. These guys are great. They worked so hard and did some landscaping in front of our office and student center. We appreciate their great help and they'll be doing that in the community as well. Because of you, ministries like this can happen. We wanna remind you that you can give online at schweitzer.church give. We thank you so much for your support of ministries inside and outside the walls of Schweitzer. And now, Here's Pastor Spencer with week three of our series, Revelation. Friends, welcome today. I'm so glad that you've joined us. My name is Spencer, and today is part three of a series we're on over the most interesting book of the Bible, and that's Revelation. Now, this series in Revelation is a little different than normal, and part of that is simply because Revelation is just different than normal. I mean, last week we talked about a seven-headed beast. This week we're going to talk about the mark of the beast. I mean, that's some weird stuff that we don't normally talk about in our sermons. And so if you're new with us, I just want you to know this is not normally the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Just Revelation is just a different kind of book. 
Another reason this series is different is because if you've heard a lot of teaching or preaching on Revelation, our approach to this might be a little bit different than you're used to. Because what I've noticed is that when it comes to Revelation, a lot of people really start paying attention to it in chapter four, because that's when the weird stuff starts. And when you do that, you miss the first three chapters, which are so incredibly important. I think they are the key to understanding the whole book. When you read the first three chapters, what you read and what you learn is that this book of Revelation was written to some real people in a real place, in a real time, with real questions, real struggles that this book is, is addressed to them and is working through. And so these, these people who receive this, what we learn in the first three chapters is that they um, consist of people who lived in seven different Roman cities and were um, living in these Christian communities in these Roman cities, these churches. And so as we look at this, what, what it is, is these seven Roman cities in what the Roman Empire called the province of Asia. Today we call this the nation of Turkey. Here's a map that shows where these are within the nation of Turkey. And what you can see is that these ancient uh, cities that had these Christian communities, they're all geographically related to one another. They would have had similar questions and struggles that they were working through. And so John, who's writing this, is writing about some real things that are going on in their life. And so John starts the book off with seven messages from Jesus to these churches. And then the rest of the book is working out really what these seven messages are and how it is that, that these Christians are called to be faithful. And when you understand Revelation in context to who it was written to, what's going on in their life and in the world, you quickly realize that Revelation is not a scary book like so many people think of it as. No, 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 no. This book is a message of good news, of hope and encouragement, especially to those who are suffering. And so today is part three. We're going to read the third message, which comes to the church in Pergamum. And what we're going to do, like we do in all these other um, sermons, is we're going to look at the message that's written, and then we're going to use that as a springboard into reading about some other parts in the book of Revelation. Help us make sense of that as we think about it through the lens of the people who received it. So today, part three is the church in Pergamum. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story. It comes from the Bible, from the Old Testament book of Numbers. And in this uh, book of Numbers, the people of Israel were recently freed from slavery in Egypt and they were delivered from slavery. Moses is leading them. And because of their hard hearts, they find themselves wandering in the wilderness for a generation. 40 years, they're wandering in the wilderness. God provides for them. They receive manna every day, which is bread from heaven to, for food. There's quail that come miraculously. There's water that comes miraculously that God continues to provide for them. And yet they have these hard hearts where they don't trust the Lord. And so they continue to wander. And they, in their wandering, they, they come a, upon a nation called Moab. And the king of Moab, his name is Balak, he, he hears that the Israelites are coming and he's concerned because he's heard the stories, right? He's heard the stories of how this slave nation defeated the mighty Egyptians. And he's thinking to himself, if, if these are the people who defeated the Egyptians, and they're coming to my country, my, my people, then he's concerned about how am I going to defeat them if the Egyptians couldn't defeat them. And so he comes up with a plan in order to fight against them. And his, his plan is, is kind of hilarious because here's, here's what it is. He hires a prophet named Balaam to come before the Israelites and just say bad things about them. Like that's his plan. Go trash talk the Israelites. And he does this because it was believed that the words of a prophet would be fulfilled and the bad things he speaks, the curses that he speaks would, would come true. And so go say bad things about them. So these bad things happen to them and that's how he's gonna defeat them. And so Balaam goes 
to confront the Israelites, to trash talk them and to say all these bad things. And as he stands to speak the bad words, he finds himself unable to speak. The Lord intervenes. He shuts his mouth. He's not able to speak. And so Balaam and Balak, they come up with plan B. And here's plan B. How are we going to defeat the Israelites? Here's plan B. Let's send out Moabite women into the Israelite camp. (laughs) That's plan B. You know how these things work. The Moabite women go out into the Israelite camp. One thing leads to another. And all of a sudden, the Israelite men have Moabite girlfriends. And with their new girlfriends, they start to pray and to worship uh, the Moabite gods to practice idolatry. And so plan B for Balaam and Balak is essentially, hey, if we can't beat them, let's just make them like us. Let's assimilate them into our culture so that they do the things that we do. That's plan B. Now with that in mind, hold on to that story. Let's go to Revelation chapter two and let's read about the church in Pergamum. Here's what Jesus says to this church. Revelation chapter two, starting in verse 12. To the angel, also can be translated as messenger, of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. The sharp double-edged sword. Oftentimes in the Bible, the scripture, the word of God, the Bible itself is referenced as a sword. Ephesians 6 talks about uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, Hebrews 4 talks about how the the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, This is a common metaphor. And so when Jesus talks about a double-edged sword, here's what we're talking about is the truth of the word of God. This is what Jesus is bringing to them. So next he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked at length about the struggle of the first Christians in the province of Asia, how, how there was so much persecution that they endured at the hands of the Roman Empire, and how what was really behind the Roman Empire, as, as Revelation lets us know, is there is this dragon who is really Satan himself, and, and so there's this demonic, almost satanic power that is behind all the suffering and struggling that they're going through, and this is what Revelation talks about in this struggle that they have. And as you understand the, the situation of what it looks like in the, in the province of Asia, one of the things you learn about Pergamum is that Pergamum is the capital of the province of Asia. Pergamum is where the Roman governor sits. It's where Roman law is enforced. At the highest peak of Pergamum is a temple dedicated to the worship of the Caesars. Where Satan has his throne is probably a reference to the Roman governor who sits there and causes pain and suffering and struggle and persecution to these Christians. So Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, how hard it must be for you. And he goes on and says, yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. As twice we've read about Satan living in their city. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. What an interesting thing to have against this Christ, these, these, these uh, Christians in this church. Now, not all of them say this, but some of them have, have uh, lived in the sin of Balaam. And as we think about their story, the sin of Balaam is idolatry and sexual immorality. It's blending into the culture around them. And so what does this teach us about the Christians in Pergamon? Well, it teaches us that some of them are probably distracted. 
Some of them are probably living with sexual sin. Some of them are, are living in a way that is not distinct to the culture around them. They, they're not living a different kind of life. We keep reading here, verse 15 says, Likewise, you also hate, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We talked about a few weeks ago. No one alive today knows who the Nicolaitans are. Some sort of group of false teachers. And then verse 16, Jesus says, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Twice now we've read about the sword of of the word of God coming to these people. Keep reading verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, the miraculous bread the Lord provided for people. And I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. A white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now in Pergamum, there was this tradition that when a great feast was held, the invitation would come with a name written on a white stone. So as Jesus is talking to them, he's talking to them about this tradition that is in their city of of being invited to a great feast. Of course, as we think about the Bible, um, heaven is often called a wedding supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb, a great feast. And Jesus is like, you're invited to this great feast. Just just stay the course, which which is a bit of a problem for them because they've, they've had a hard time staying the course. There are some of them who are distracted and have lost their way and are blending into the culture around them. Uh, Bible scholar N.T. Wright, he describes the situation in Pergamum like this. He says, one way or another, the problem in Pergamum is that much of the church has lost its cutting edge, its ability to say no to the surrounding culture. Now, this raises an interesting question, a big question, really. A big question of, of just simply this, of when you think of the situation in Pergamum, how should a Christian live in a city like Pergamum? How should a Christian live in a city where Satan has his throne? How should a Christian live in a city where the gospel is not welcome? How should a Christian live in a city, in a place that holds to different values and different, uh, different uh, virtues than you hold dear and promotes different values than you hold dear? How do you live as a Christian in a, in a place that doesn't support and even works against the things that you hold dear to yourself. And this question, of course, is is for those who live in Pergamon, but really this is a question for all Christians because it doesn't matter the age, the time, the generation, the place that you live. This is a question that everyone who follows Jesus has to answer at some point in their life. How are you going to live when you live in a place that does not welcome the gospel? How are you going to approach that and how are you going to understand that? How are you going to live, whether it's in your school or your work or your family or your community or just the wider culture that we live in in America today that that doesn't embrace faith in the way that you do? How are you going to live when that is your reality? Now, this is a question, of course, for all Christians. This is a question the Bible addresses in several places. And so let's go uh, to another place in the Bible. Um, Revelation 13, where this question is asked, but in a slightly different way. And let's go to Revelation 13 and read one of the most, I don't know, controversial, talked about places, things in the book of Revelation. 
One of these things that almost everyone likes to speculate on. And let's talk about the mark of the beast. So remember, Revelation 13, if you were with us last week, we started there and we talked about a seven-headed beast and a dragon that was uh, coming and, uh, into the earth. And as we talked about this in context, we realized that the seven-headed beast was really a uh, reference to the Roman Empire with a dragon behind it. And, and the seven-headed beast was causing all of this trouble for the Christians. And I'm not going to go through all that again this week. You can go back and watch that online. But, but as we come to this today, um, we're just going to pick up really where we left off last week with, the, with this beast that is causing all of this destruction. And I want you to hear what happens with this beast and how it really comes to this question that the Pergamums are wrestling with as well. So Revelation 13, we're going to start reading in verse 11. Here's what it says. It says, Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. Now, you got to love Revelation because of how cryptic this is, but let's just think about this practically. If you exercise the authority of something on behalf of it, what does that make you? Well, it makes you a subordinate, right? That's what it is. You're exercising the authority on behalf of someone else. And so we, we again, we think about the seven-headed beast in Revelation we talked about last week, how it is probably a reference to the Roman Empire. We think about Pergamum, where Satan has his throne. Likely, we're talking about the Roman governor. As you think about these kinds of things, the Roman governor, he submits himself to the Roman Caesar. He, he lives under him, his authority. He's a subordinate to him. And this is probably the relationship that John is describing here in Revelation 13. Now, we keep reading here about this subordinate. Um, it says that the subordinate made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. We talked about that a lot last week, the worship of the Caesars, whose fatal wound had been healed. We also talked about that. I'm not going to go back through all those things the, the, about the fatal wound. And the second beast, it performed um, great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. And because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed, which is what was happening to these first Christians is that there was great persecution taking place to anyone who was not worshiping the Caesars. As they said, Caesar is Lord and they would worship him. And there's this this great persecution that's taking place. Now verse comes verse 16. Such a talked about verse in the Bible. It says, It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads. We're talking about the mark of the beast. Verse 17. So they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. Now, in the ancient world, uh, there was this uh, thing that people did that was quite popular, where they would ascribe certain numerical numbers to letters. And uh, so, for instance, you know, A would be one and B would be two and C would be three. And you would kind of form these numbers up. And if you take uh, the, the emperor, one of the most powerful emperors, one of the powerful Caesars that the Roman Empire had, which was Nero, and you take his, his name from Latin into Hebrew and you calculate that based on that formula, what you come to is six, six, six. 
Let's talk about the mark of the beast here, the 666. This is a reference to the power that the Caesars had over the world and the exercise that even killed people who wouldn't go along with their plan and their program, the, the worship of the Caesars. Now, of course, there's all kinds of speculation about the mark of the beast. All kinds of energy is spent thinking about what this means and is it some sort of like barcode that gets tattooed on our hands or some sort of computer chip that gets implanted to us. And there's all kinds of energy that people spend speculating about what this is, looks like and what this means. And to be honest with you, I don't find any of that speculation interesting or helpful. <laughs> it doesn't really affect how I live or what it is I do. But what I do find much more interesting is when I stop and I think about the bigger point behind the mark of the beast. Because the bigger question of the mark of the beast, it's not about a barcode or a chip that some people like to talk about getting implanted in our skin. Really, the, the bigger question is this. What is the purpose of the mark that we read in Revelation 13? What is the purpose of the mark? And as you think about this, what is the purpose of the mark? Revelation 13, it told us explicitly what the purpose for the mark of the beast was. Chapter 13, verse 17, it was this. Quote, so they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark. The purpose of the mark of the beast is to participate in the economy. It's to be able to buy or sell in the marketplace. So imagine you're a Christian in a city like Pergamum. This is a city where Satan has his throne. The Roman governor lives here. The seat of power of the government that causes all kinds of trouble and problems for you, he lives here. The, the cult of worshiping the emperor, it's here. There's a temple devoted to the emperor. And, and this would have been the dividing line. Do you worship the emperor or do you not? Would have been the dividing line on whether or not you were acceptable or unacceptable in Roman culture. In fact, it was, it was required that there would be formal sacrifices that someone would have to make in order to sell their goods in the market or be able to buy in the market. And when they would make these formal sacrifices, they would receive a mark in order to go into the market to be able to sell their goods, showing that they are either acceptable or unacceptable in Roman society. As you begin to think about the mark of the beast, you begin to realize this is about something bigger than just did I get a barcode or did I get a stamp or did I get some sort of chip implanted in my skin? This is about a bigger thing of, of how am I going to participate in the culture around me? Because imagine you're a Christian in Pergamum. You have an impossible question that you have to ask yourself now. Do I hold fast to the way of Christ, proclaim him as the Lord and give him my life and live in a different way than everyone around me? Or do I go along and do I assimilate? Do I, do I blend in to what everyone is doing in order that I'm going to be able to provide for my family, to, to sell in the marketplace, to be able to participate in the economy? Like, am I willing to go through these steps in order to, to still be able to, to provide for my family? It's an impossible situation. And as you think about it in terms of this, about being acceptable or unacceptable, about blending into the culture, what you realize is what we're talking about here is the sin of Balaam. Am I going to blend in to be like everyone else? Now, this is not just a question for those who are in Pergamum. This is a question for every Christian in every age, in every generation, in every place. Am I going to live a life that is formed by the way of Christ? 
Or am I going to live a life that is formed by the wider culture around me? This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The question for every Christian in every age is always going to be, am I living my life in a way that is distinct and different than the culture around me? Now, as I, as I think about this, I think it's fascinating that, that when Jesus speaks to these Christians in Pergamum who are blending in and have this temptation to blend in and, and just go along with what everyone else is doing around them, I think it's fascinating that Jesus specifically brings up two things. He brings up idolatry and sexual immorality. And I think sexual immorality is, is, is particularly interesting because as I think about our own culture, there is certainly a dividing line that occurs in our culture around how we understand sexuality. A dividing line between those who are acceptable and not acceptable. A dividing line of how they approach this and understand this according to to the way the culture thinks about sexuality. I mean, this is a, a very real debate that happens in the church among American Christians about how do we go about navigating um, the cultural tension to blend in, especially when it comes to how we understand sexual ethics. When I was in seminary, I went to this uh, a pretty progressive seminary, and I had this preaching professor, I won't say his name, but I had a preaching professor who um, had, in one of his lectures, I remember this so clearly, I mean, it's almost 20 years ago, but I remember this so clearly, he had this this point he was making about how, as preachers, we should not preach sermons against things like uh, cohabitation or uh, sex outside of marriage or how we shouldn't preach about how sex is, is a God's gift uh, to be contained in a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. We should never say those kinds of things. And, and I remember sitting in the class and I remember him saying why it is that we shouldn't preach on these kinds of things. And he said, um, we shouldn't preach on those kinds of things because... The culture has moved on. And I remember being an aspiring preacher, sitting in that class thinking, hold on a second. The culture has moved on is the reason why we shouldn't preach certain things? Like, the, the wider world is now our gauge on what it is that we can say and can't say? Like, like we're going to let our neighbors tell us how to live and not the, the Bible? And yet this is the, this very real tension that exists in the church today to, to be acceptable or unacceptable according to what the culture says. And of course, sexuality is one area where this comes up. It comes up in all kinds of other areas as well. I mean, the truth is that if you're going to live a faithful life in Christ, you are going to find yourself facing a dividing line between those who conform to the world and those who conform to Christ. And this shows up in all kinds of ways. I mean, it's not just about sex. Let's think about greed, for instance. I mean, our culture teaches us to accumulate and to live materialistic lives, whereas the scripture teaches us to live generosity, with generosity and simplicity. And if you're going to live with generosity and simplicity, you're going to be at odds with the culture and the people around you. Or I think about how the, the, the culture teaches us to, uh, to live as if, as if everything in life is dependent upon you. And so we seek to have control over absolutely everything in our lives instead of living as the Bible teaches us, trusting the Lord and living with a peace that passes understanding. Or I think about how the, the culture teaches us to live our lives as if we really, really matters what people think about us. And so we chase after what other people have and we compare ourselves to others and we live in fear about what other people have instead of living as the Bible teaches with an identity that's shaped in Christ. And my point is that there's all kinds of ways where there is a dividing line 
between those who are going to live the way of Christ and those who are going to live the way of the world. And as a Christian, you are always going to have to face those questions. Am I being marked by the way of Christ or am I assimilating and just blending into the culture around me? My fear is that there's some of us who are blending in and we, we don't even realize it. And as we think about the mark of the beast and we think about it maybe in a bigger term in terms of the purpose that was given here in Revelation 13, what we see is that the mark of the beast has so much less to do with a barcode or a chip or something like that, but so much more with are we simply living our lives to blend in to the culture around us. And my fear is that there's some of us who are living with the mark of the beast and we don't even realize it because really there's nothing distinctive or different about our lives. We just look like everyone else. Now, it's interesting to me that when it comes to the mark of the beast, um, we never read the very next verse. The mark of the beast is found in Revelation 13. It's in the very last verse of Revelation 13. And then comes Revelation 14. And the very next verse of Revelation 14 gives us the alternative to to the mark of the beast. And here's what that verse says. It says, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There's the mark of the beast, and then there's the mark of the lamb. There's the way of the world, and then there's the way of Christ. Are you worshiping, are you living a life that is marked by the world, or are you living a life that is marked by Christ? Are you wearing the world, or are you wearing Christ? These Christians in Pergamum, There's a question before them, but it's really a question that all of us have to ask. Are we being marked by the world or are we living a distinct, different kind of life? For them, it was about selling in the marketplace. For us, it's about all the ways we maybe find ourselves on the right side, the dividing line of this acceptable or unacceptable line in our culture. And you might wonder to yourself, well, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to live a life that is different and distinct and unique and not live like the culture around me? And if that's a question you're asking, I just want to answer this with, by pointing out that twice in the message to the Christians of Pergamum, we read about the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth, the scripture. How do you live a different kind of life? Well, it starts here with the word of God. Letting this be our foundation, letting this be our guide, Letting this be the light unto our path. Letting this be the the dividing line of truth that we live by. When you neglect this, you will always be shaped by the world. But when you make this the foundation of your life, what you're going to find is that you're going to be marked by the way of Christ. But be warned, you're also going to find yourself living at odds with the wider culture around you. Let's pray. And so, Father... Uh, Today, we do confess and acknowledge that there are ways that we just adopt what the world does. We just live according to the patterns of the beast around us. We don't think about it. We don't pray about it. We don't go to your word. We just simply live like everyone else. And we ask you for your forgiveness. Help us to live distinct and different lives grounded on the word of God, which is what you have given us in order to live different. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray today. Amen. Thanks so much for being here with us today for worship. 
I want to especially thank the team that made this service possible and a special thank you to Pastor Spencer for his powerful message. If you know someone who would benefit from this message, I invite you to share it on social media. We thank you so much for doing that. And now, I pray that you have a great week and we'll see you back here next week for week four of Revelation.